Thanks, Andy, and kia ora, St. Augustines. Some years ago, while on a work trip to the UK, I was meeting an old friend and colleague of mine, Rich Johnson, for a drink at the King's Arms Tavern at Oxford University. Uh, Rich is the vicar of All Saints in Worcester, which is in the north. I was in London in the south, so we kind of met halfway uh, at Oxford. And as you come from the train station and walk along Broad Street on the way to the King's Arms, King's Arms, uh, you find this in the middle of the road. This marks the spot where three senior English clergy, Hugh Lattimore, Nicholas Ridley in 1555, and Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cramner in 1556, were martyred. They were burnt at the stake at this very spot by Queen Mary at the beginning of the English Reformation. As among other things, they refused to give up on their position that the Bible um, should be translated into English. They were willing to suffer and die to have the scriptures in the hands of common people. William Tyndale was a linguist at Cambridge University. Uh, he was fluent in both Hebrew and Greek. And after the reading the Bible in its original languages, he came to the conclusion that the Bible, not the Pope nor the monarch at the time, was the authority on what was normative for thinking about human life and God. And secondly, he believed that every follower of Jesus should be able to read the Bible in her or his own language. And for Tyndale, that meant Middle English. Now, of course, we might feel like this is a no-brainer for us today, but um, this just shows you how comfortable we are with the status quo. In 1408, you see, it came into English law that it was illegal to translate the Bible into Middle English. So Tyndale had to escape to Germany, um, where he did the very first English translation of the New Testament, drawn from its native language, which is Greek. Then, with the help of a very wealthy patron, he was able to smuggle 18,000 English New Testaments across the channel and back into England, where followers of Jesus would have these secret meetings in people's homes. And by candlelight, someone at a whisper, at a hush, would quietly read the Bible. The king of the time, Henry VIII, heard of this and was enraged and brought up 6,000 copies and had them burnt on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral in central London. He ramped this up by passing a law that anyone who came into contact with a Tyndale Bible was to destroy it immediately as anyone found uh, with one would be put to death. Tyndale was eventually captured and at his execution, his last words were a prayer. Lord, open the King of England's eyes. A couple of years later, this prayer was answered, and Henry VIII withdrew the law, and the Tyndale translation uh, formed the basis of the 1611 King James Bible, which has been hands down the most single important piece of culture to have influenced the English language. And uh, I actually have a page from one of the first editions uh, here. This is a page from Isaiah 64, where Isaiah cries out to God, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. So the question is, you know, what is it about the library of Scripture that some of the greatest luminaries of the day were willing to suffer and die to make it available for us to read? What is it about the library of scripture that some of the most powerful leaders and administrations from the Roman Empire, communist China, Nazi Germany, 
<coughs> excuse me, uh, Soviet Russia. All of the above have either banned the Bible outright or have attempted to censor public access to the Bible. From a human perspective, you know, the Bible should have died out ages ago. Yet through these human words and through this quite checkered human history, God has superintended the gathering of this library as an instrument through which God speaks his word. And as we continue in our series, Whakarongo Kite Kupu, uh, listen to the word, listen to scripture. Today I want to speak about both the divine and human sides of the Bible. Not only because God has chosen to breathe his divine spirit and communicate through the humanity of the Bible, but also because this has big implications for how we understand our relationship with God and the process of forming us into being people who, like the person in Psalm 1, experiences a life of human flourishing. One of the most ancient approaches to understanding the Bible as both a divine and human work through which God uniquely speaks um, is through our understanding of the person of Jesus. Here's one of the oldest icons we have. It dates back to the 6th century AD, and it's in uh, St. Catherine's Monastery at Sinai. And it's attempting to show both the human and the divine in the one person of Jesus, who uniquely and most fully communicates uh, to us who God is like. Often when we find ourselves emphasizing the divine side of Jesus or the divine side of the Bible, we feel scandalized by the humanness. That Jesus had to be taught how to walk or learn Aramaic, use the bathroom, that he felt pain, got hungry, got angry, felt joy. All of this humanity can make us feel, I don't know, it's slightly off-putting to us. Or on the other side, when we find ourselves emphasizing the human side of Jesus or the human side of the Bible, we feel scandalized by, <coughs> excuse me, the divineness of it all, the miracles, the healings and the way it connects us or mediates God to us. And this is where the Bible's view of reality really presses on us as moderns and our view of reality, which reflexively wants to say, if something is divine or if something has its origins in God, it cannot involve or somehow has to stand outside of the natural processes of cause and effect. And for me, it has taken a long time to allow myself to let go of this. It's taken me a long time to be okay about allowing God to be, allowing God to work and allowing God to be powerful enough to achieve what God wants to achieve, not despite the created world, not despite human limitations, but rather through creation and through human beings. I mean, even now it feels slightly scandalous to point out that in the story of the Bible, the only time God works independently of creation or in the absence of human beings is in the creation story on page one, where the Spirit of God and the Word of God organize and set up creation. From there on in, God speaking God's Word and acting through the Holy Spirit always involves human beings, people just like you, people just like me. You know, God works in the world through the Holy Spirit. And from creation onwards, the Holy Spirit works through human beings. And of course, the Bible narrates people encountering God in some pretty, you know, extraordinary situations through dreams, through visions, the burning bush for Moses. You know, the Exodus event 
God stepping into the world, onto the world stage in the person of Jesus. And yes, all of this is God acting. But, <coughs> excuse me, but also, yes, all of this is God acting through people and through the people who recorded these events, which in many ways is scandalously ordinary. And a great example of this is actually the first instance of writing the Bible in the Bible. It's in Exodus 17, and the setting is en route from Egypt to the Promised Land. Israel is a caravan of refugees. We're incredibly vulnerable. And in this passage, it tells of them being attacked. And in this story, here they are attacked by the people of Amalek. And as it says here, and Moses says to Joshua, Choose some men for us, <coughs> excuse me, and to go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it. Now, there's some pretty interesting dynamics going on in this story, but we just don't have the time to unpack them now. But in terms of the first instance of the writing of the Bible in the Bible, you know, can you see what's going on here? God doesn't place Moses in some kind of hypnotic state or some kind of trance or bypass Moses' brain and just take over Moses' hand. Now, in fact, what we have here is the very opposite of that. What we have here is God commanding Moses to go and write down what happened for the purposes of someone else. In this case, it was uh, Joshua. What Moses encountered was indeed miraculous and indeed it was a divine encounter. The process of recording this as a reminder for Joshua was a very human process. Moses writing it down on a scroll. In the very first instance of the writing of the Bible in the Bible, what we have here is this picture of partnership or a union between God and human beings, between human words and divine words. Can you see what's going on here? God's means of communicating through the Bible is central to the message of the Bible. God and humanity working in partnership, a relationship between creator and image-bearing creature, that through less than perfect human beings, with all their quirks and their mixed histories, you know, God's power and presence and purpose is revealed to the world. Often we find ourselves defending a position about the pristineness of the Bible, that the purposes and the power and the message of the Bible does not require. And in fact, in the end, is actually counter to the message of the Bible. The authority of the Bible, you see, is not because it has no human uh, fingerprints on it at all, but the authority is through because the Holy Spirit breathes his life through these particular writings that the Holy Spirit has intended, uh, superintended to connect us to the reality of God. And so the point I want to make here is really um, quite a simple one. The human words 
like the human life of Jesus, are not incidental to the communication of God's word. And so the more we understand the culture and the mode of communication found in the human words of the scripture, the more we hear what God is saying through them. This week in our formational communities, we'll be looking at the spiritual practice of studying the Bible. You know, what does it mean to get some help in understanding the mode and style that the Bible communicates in? And there's, you know, some really great resources from the Bible Project, which in my opinion, is one of the very best resources I've ever encountered. And it's free and it's online. Just go to um, thebibleproject.com or download the app. I found these guys to be super accessible and just really amazing. And if you haven't gone there, I just can't encourage this uh, enough. And saying all that, however, understanding the human and the divine side of the Bible is just, it's not about just developing a skill set or a technique. It's also about developing a heart posture. You know, when we read an article in a newspaper, an article online, a textbook, a journal, a self-help book, an Instagram post, you know, we primarily, primarily read uh, for information. We live in an information age. Information is a huge part of our culture. We need it for our jobs. We need to get access to the things that we need for our life. And this is all good and right. However, it's just not the primary way we should approach the Bible. Robert Mulholland, in his book, Shaped by the Word, uh, says this. We have a deeply ingrained way of reading in which we are the masters of the material we read. We come to a text with our own agenda firmly in place, perhaps not always consciously, but usually subconsciously. If what we start to read does not fairly quickly begin to adapt itself to our agenda, we usually lay it aside and look for something that does. This mode of reading is detrimental to the role of Scripture. The role of Scripture in spiritual formation is not so much a body of information, a technique, a method, a model, as it is a mode of being in relationship with God. As a self-confessed uh, Bible nerd, the temptation for me as I pick up the Bible is to stay at this surface level of just gathering information, being captivated by the design patterns that structure the books of the Bible, often struck by how subversive the Bible was to its original hearers, or um, you know, this or that wordplay or this particular you know, interesting Greek or Hebrew word. I mean, what we're dealing with when you pick up the Bible is one of the most sophisticated pieces of human culture and literary artistry in history. So it's easy to get stuck at uh, this point, either by confusion or fascination. But the real money, if I can put it like that, is actually to move past this and seek that moment of encounter, to encounter the person of Jesus to which the scripture speaks, to sit with the text long enough to have the spirit feed and refresh your soul or yield to the Spirit's uh, formative process in our lives. At its heart, the invitation to take up and read the Scripture, to wrestle with the Scripture by yourself or in a, in, you know, in a formational community, for example, or to open yourself to its formative power is really an invitation to re-trust my life uh, to God again. I want to come into land uh, and give the last word to Mel Holland, who says this, 
The very thought of being conformed confronts a deeply ingrained sense of being. We have extreme difficulty in abiding and waiting patiently and trustingly and shaped by God according to God's agenda. Genuine spiritual formation reverses our role from being the subject who controls the objects of the world to being the object of the loving purposes of God. Genuine spiritual formation brings about a fundamental shift from being our own production to being God's creation. As I finish, allow me to lead you in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to pause um, uh, today and we want to thank you for uh, the scriptures. We want to thank you for the way that it communicates something of you, something of the person of Jesus. And Heavenly Father, we are praying that as we read the scriptures, you would be helping us by your Holy Spirit to not only connect us to the whole people of God that have been shaped by um, this library, but mostly that you would be connecting ourselves to you. Help us to be brave enough and open enough and to have enough courage to yield ourselves to your formative process, knowing that you always have our best in mind, that you have human flourishing, our flourishing at the very heart of this. Change us so that we might reflect Christ into the world for the sake of others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.